0: Welcome to Vintage Lesbians, a personal journey of friendship and queer history where we try to set the record a little less straight. I'm Allison, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm your other host, Shan. And this is Vintage Lesbians. Yay, we did it. We're here. Shan, it's been so long since last we've spoken. Ages. How are you doing?
1: You know, pretty good. I just texted my girlfriend for for weed money. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Living your uh, best life. Living my best life.
0: Mm-hmm. It's September. There's a chill in the air. Just the other day, I Is bit there into a, chill a, in the air? a a a crisp apple and felt it crunch beneath my teeth. Ooh, it was good. Kids are going back to school. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, um,
1: played an epic D and D game just yesterday with children. Y- yeah, remember? Because we will have done that.
0: Oh yes. Yes, I forgot. That
1: <laughs> is that yesterday or today? It's today. Yeah. Oh. We're playing D and D right now. With children. And it's fun. Yeah. This is all lies. We're recording this in the past. We do record all of our
0: episodes in the past though, if you think about it. Yeah. Whoa man, that's deep. So deep. Shannon and I um, got invited to a 15-year-old's birthday party, and I'm so excited because I didn't get invited to 15-year-old birthday parties when I was 15. <laughs> <laughs> this is my second year in a row. Uh, I'm not
1: so much invited as I am providing the entertainment because this is one of my D&D kids, and they really want to play D&D for their birthday, so I'm writing a game, and some of my uh, D&D adults are coming, and I'm very excited because I like it when the children see different ways to play and different like ways they can annoy me and I hope that they will find <laughs> the same joy in tormenting me that all of my
0: adult friends have. If I play d with with Shannon I can't get him to put his entire head in his hands. I don't know if I've done a good job. You know I don't know
1: if I've done a good job either.
0: <laughs> all right well you want to you want to learn about Esther Eng? Yes I do. <gasps> yes you look so excited. I haven't told you who we are talking about yet i'm you know i'm, I'm
1: slightly familiar because i was gonna research her ah. like way back when we started because she's on our original list mm-hmm. which i haven't even looked at in weeks but uh, <laughs> i researched her a little bit before i um i don't remember what happened i think i picked, i went with someone else and then i swiped i'm her. really excited
0: yay i found this out from our list as well it was recommended to us by someone named elena thanks elena
1: hey i love elena yeah. i'm i'm in love with elena oh my goodness tight
0: um, Esther Eng, as you already know, was a Chinese American filmmaker in the forties and fifties and sixties. And the New York Times called her a five foot tall powerhouse. And then there's more about her as well. But we'll get into that right now. She Wait, how I tall was she? Five feet. She was just five feet tall? She's a five foot tall oh, powerhouse. Man,
1: I have a friend who's five foot one. And boy,
0: it's nice to feel tall sometimes. Esther Eng was born on September 24th, 1914, in San Francisco, California. Uh, she was second generation. Her grandparents immigrated from China years earlier, and both of her parents were born and raised in San Francisco. Nice, nice. She was the fourth of ten children. That is too many children. It's a lot of children. It's different times. That is... Okay, but that's several children. It is several children, yes. Uh-huh. Different times, though, you know? Yeah. Were they all close in age, or did they space them out a little? This I do not know. Oh, okay. Her birth name was Ng Kam Ha. She eventually adopted the name Esther Eng because it was easier for Western audiences to pronounce. I'm sorry about the way that we are. Mm-hmm. Esther grew up in a home at 1010 Washington Street in San Francisco. I looked it up, and it's still standing. It's a nondescript building on a street filled with other nondescript apartment buildings in the heart of Chinatown. Um, it was built in nineteen oh eight, which is just two years after the earthquake. Oh geez, yeah it was. Yeah. Speaking of the earthquake, the San Francisco earthquake and fire in nineteen oh six had wiped out Chinatown and pretty much all of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know a ton about it other than like it was super
1: destructive and yeah. earthquakes are scary. Have you ever been in an earthquake like that Not a big one,
0: but I grew up in Southern California, so uh, earthquakes were pretty commonplace. Were you there in ninety four? Probably, yes. I was there. I don't remember exactly what or when you're talking about.
1: I mean, there was a very large earthquake in 1994. Ah, yes.
0: Well, I was there for the whole of 1994. Or, ni- or 95. I was Either there way, too. like, a whole parking structure collapsed. If it was between 1990 and 2009, I was
1: probably there. That makes sense, because that's when you lived there. hmm That does make sense. Yeah. Where did you live, though? I lived in San Diego. Okay. Yeah. This hit more, like downtown la yeah so
0: it wouldn't have been as like i probably yeah, felt the aftershocks like the, the
1: epicenter was in um south center mm. yeah i
0: was also four my memory from back then isn't super girl. i
1: remember the whole thing
0: oh you were just three also. yeah
1: i was very small but like, you lived in la yes i lived like we felt the whole thing like it was i um i did not wake up but I remember the dream that I had. I dreamed that there were baby kangaroos bouncing all over my bedroom. And then I woke up and my whole family was in my bed because my bed was the only one that wasn't right under a window. And like all of our dishes had come out of our cupboards, dropped down and then gone back into the cupboards. So only the bottom shelf of things actually broke.
0: Oh, dang, okay.
1: (laughs) Um, And our piano was busted and like a whole bunch of stuff was blown around the backyard. But I remember driving with my mom like the next- in the next couple of days, a whole parking structure was just gone. Wow. Like, earthquakes, if you haven't been through one, don't seem like a huge deal, I think. Because it's, how do you really picture that? Your
0: whole world shaking. Mm-hmm. You can't really. Can I can. Can you? Well, I've been in earthquakes. Well, yeah, you can. <laughs> but yeah, it was a big earthquake. I don't I... have the exact magnitude in front of me.
1: Yeah. Um, and also the technology for like... Building foundations was probably not as good. I don't know Mm -hmm. how building foundations work.
0: I was just listening to a 99% 99 Invisible about sand. Um, Were you? And they talked a lot about concrete. And before the San Francisco earthquake, someone had already invented reinforced concrete, concrete Mm -hmm. with steel rods in it, but no one would hire him to build their buildings. And so he had like four buildings in um San Francisco and after the earthquake those were some of the only buildings that were wow. still up and so his sales went way up. Great advertisement. Listen to 99% invisible for more information. Sand is one of our most valuable resources and it's running out. <laughs> <sighs> Do you think Slowly. your episodes are
1: longer just because I force us on these long tangents all <laughs> <Maybe>. the time? <laughs> Maybe a little bit.
0: <laughs> Before the earthquake in 1906 about 15,000 Chinese people had lived in San Francisco. Immediately afterwards, most of the survivors moved to Oakland. And so immediately after the earthquake, about 400 Chinese people remained in Chinatown. Oh, geez. That's quite the, the drop. Yeah. A lot. Chinatown is in a really great location. It is, as that one meme says, prime real estate. Did I do a good job? <laughs> it's free real estate. It was free real estate. Okay, it's not free real. It was just prime real prime. estate.
1: Prime real estate is good, though.
0: Um, so when the plans to relocate Chinatown were drawn up, um, they initially were going to relocate it to the edge of the city Mm. and give that good middle of the city land to white business owners. (laughs) That's what I think of that. The Chinese people stood their ground and talked about- This was ours before it burned down. Mm -hmm. Why can't it still be? Pretty much. Also like- we generate a lot of tax revenue and if you kick us out all of us business owners are going to go to like oakland or somewhere else and you're not going to have any of it and so they were able to finally rebuild on their initial neighborhood and then the local business owners got together and decided to hire american architects to rebuild and they purposely put in a lot of symbolism to make it look like the western idea of china to appeal to tourists Mm -hmm. which is why now they're pagodas and dragons everywhere in chinatown
1: all the stereotypical stuff mm-hmm.
0: so before then chinatown just looked like any other neighborhood in china or er, in san francisco yeah. and then afterwards it became more of like a a marked difference in what it looked like
1: kind of like leavenworth <laughs>
0: yeah leavenworth is a bavarian in quotes city in huh. the middle of washington yep middle of western it doesn't washington. actually
1: have any bavarian heritage though the mayor went like Going was just like, you know, all those Bavarian villages that have all that traditional stuff in architecture in them? Let's do that. Mm-hmm. And and now everything
0: is Bavarian themed. Yep. You can go to Ye Old Starbucks. It's. Buy a big old hot dog and a, and a pretzel. Kishy, kitschy as hell is what it is. I do have fun when I go there, though. Me too. Try on a lot of hair. Hey, let's go on a weekend <gasps> soon. That sounds fun, yeah. Uh, I'll plan it. All right. Um, this was the Chinatown into which Esther was born. Uh, Her early years overlapped with the town being rebuilt, and by the time she was in her teens, it was a bustling and vibrant community with a lot of tourism. And it had a thriving arts scene. She fell in love with the theater and with performing arts in general, and as soon as she was old enough, she got a job at the Mandarin Theater's box office. China had used to ban female performers, but in 1911, that ban was lifted. So by the time Esther was in her teens, there were a lot of well-known touring Female Chinese opera singers. Nice. The Mandarin Theater was the preeminent Chinese language opera in San Francisco, and I'm guessing America as mm-hmm. well. Um, and they hosted well-regarded and highly paid Chinese performers, some of whom were passing through on tour, and some who were staying on as part of the company. And they generally would always just host the um, the highest, most well-regarded artists of the time, is like the creme de la creme. During her work at the Mandarin Box Office, Esther was able to meet and befriend some of the performers. She developed a particularly close relationship with a woman named Wei Fong. She was an opera singer and eventually became Esther's muse as she began making movies. And they probably... Did it? ...had a romantic relationship. That's a much nicer way of saying that. (laughs) (laughs) In the 1930s, America was starting to become more interested in Chinese heritage. It was still very much in an exoticized touristy way. Um, Chinese... Americans still obviously experienced an intense amount of oppression and racism, mm-hmm. but they were allowed to show more pride in their heritage. And in about 20 years before then was the Xingai Revolution, which is the Chinese revolution that overthrew the last imperial dynasty. So oh. around this time, okay. nationalism was very popular among Chinese people. It would be. And Think
1: how nationalistic America was after they won
0: their independence. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Thing at you know tone down a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Did, it, did it
0: when? <laughs> I must
1: have missed it.
0: It was into this culture that Esther's father founded a small talking pictures company, a movie company. Ooh. um And it was likely in large part due to Esther's encouragement. Uh, That's very sweet. One of the stars that her father hired to be in his films was Wei Kim Fong. <gasps> you may remember was her probable lover.
1: I do remember.
0: Um, Also, at this time, Esther was 21 years old. Uh, She didn't have any film experience, but she was very passionate about performing and had many connections to the Chinese theater community, Mm -hmm. and it was also her idea to start the the film company. So So now she had a way in because of nepotism. So her father hired her as a co-producer of their first film, which was called Heartaches. Heartaches was a romantic drama that was filmed in eight days on Sunset Boulevard and was billed as the first Cantonese singing talking picture made in Hollywood wow a lot of firsts mm-hmm. uh it was very well received in the cantonese community in america and abroad good for them i'm proud of them yeah they did a great job most of we'll get to this later but most of her films didn't um survive mainly because a lot of films from those days didn't survive
1: yeah that uh cellulose stuff just degrades after mm-hmm. time i think we're we've lost like 90 percent of movies that have been made because of it
0: Probably didn't help that she was a woman and it wasn't in English. Probably. After that movie came out, Esther and Wei Kim Fong moved to Hong Kong. Esther worked on her directorial debut at the Nanyang Movie Picture Company, which was Hong Kong's largest studio. Her movie, which premiered in 1937, when she was 23, was called National Heroine, and it starred Kim Fong again. Nice. Nice. One article said that the film was hailed as an ode to Chinese womanhood and awarded a certificate of merit from the Kwantung Federation of Women's Rights. Aang lived in Hong Kong for the next three years, where she directed or co-directed four movies and wrote the screenplays for two. One of the last ones while she was living there was um, the 1939 film It's a Woman's World, which had an all-woman cast of 36 um, different Chinese people, and it showed um, their daily lives and professional labors, just sort of like a... It kind of reminds me, the description reminds me of Nashville. Have you ever seen Nashville? Um, the television show? No, the movie starring Jeff Goldblum. It's not really starring Jeff Goldblum. No. He's just sign it. It won an, an Academy Award, I think. Um, and it, it was basically just kind of slice of life from different people. And sometimes their paths overlap, but sometimes they're completely separate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it was like that. But it was in 1939, and it was all women. In the Chinese opera world, homosexuality was very common and accepted. In Hong Kong and in China, uh, Esther's sexual and gender identity were never fully confirmed, but she was largely known and accepted in those circles. She never, ever wore feminine clothing. The Chinese gossip columns at the time often mentioned how close she was with other women, calling them bosom friends or good sisters. And then in one 1938 article of the Tsingtao Daily News said her work, address, manner, and dress, as well as her sensibility, was completely that of a man, and made her the living proof of the possibility of same-sex love. In 1938, they said hmm. this. Pretty cool, China, in 1938. Mm-hmm. So she was an out-mask lesbian. Yeah, that's rad as hell. Back then. In the late 30s, tensions started to heat up in that area. Japan's military presence was getting closer and closer to Hong Kong, and so she moved back to the U.S. in late 1939 japan invaded and occupied hong kong two years later Mm -hmm. she also probably moved back because at that point she had ended her relationship with wei kim fong and another one with another unknown woman we couldn't find out more about
1: Mm, lesbian drama
0: i know she seemed to get around (laughs) esther moved back to san francisco in 1939 or 1940 in that general area Mm -hmm. dangerous time to travel (laughs) but better than like a few years later yeah i guess i guess you're right yeah the U.S. culture that she returned to in 1940 wasn't quite as welcoming towards masked lesbians. Shock. Yes. Although it got a lot worse in the 50s. So, like, 40s. Ugh. However, even though the American culture became more and more homophobic and dangerous to people who didn't fit traditional gender roles, she never changed her gender presentation, and she never hid her romantic or sexual interests for her entire life as far as I could find out.
1: I am okay, sure she's
0: badass. Yeah. I'm sure she sometimes, like, didn't out herself. Like, she probably didn't
1: advertise it so much as just... Mm
0: -hmm. She wore masculine clothing and she kept her hair quite short, but she always surrounded herself in places where she had power, in um, communities that weren't as connected to, like, the American police. Mm -hmm. When she moved back to San Francisco, she was initially planning on distributing cinema, but she was soon lured back into the world of writing and directing. Ugh, can't keep her away. (laughs) Just loves to make that thing Mm -hmm. that... That story from page to screen. Get my imagination and put it on the silver screen. She directed what is probably her most famous film, Golden Gate Girl, in 1941. Newspapers at this time called it the first made-in-the-U.S. Chinese feature, which you may remember was also the title that was given to the last Chinese feature that she had made in America. Sure was. Seems like they forgot, maybe? hmm They didn't take a lot of notes about Cantonese-language films. Shocking um this is one of the her only films that still exists today um and it's noticeable notable for another reason as well earlier that year a cantonese opera singer named lee ho chen had been on a u.s tour with his wife grace uh she was pregnant and ended up giving birth in san francisco and the family stayed there for a few months as the baby lee Junfan fan got old enough to travel mm-hmm. the lee family let their baby play the role of the infant in golden gate girl that baby eventually grew up and changed his name to be more palatable to Western audiences. Um, and so he's better known to us as Bruce Lee. Oh shit. Yeah. He was a, a baby star. He was a baby star in, in one of Esther Eng's last movies. That's wild. After World War II, Esther moved back to Hong Kong for two years and then she returned back to California. By 1947, she was working closely with a Chinese opera singer named Li Feifei. She also likely had a romantic relationship with her as well. Lee acted as her muse and starred in three of Eng's movies. At one point in the mid-40s, Aang was was the only woman directing feature-length films in the United States. And she was definitely the only lesbian doing it. (laughs) How many other Asians were doing it also? Probably not many. (laughs) The other um, uh, female director had retired in 1943, and then the next one started in 1949. So there were a good six years there. Dang. Can I correct a thing
1: I said earlier? Yeah. Uh, We've lost 90% of films that were made before 1929, Ah. and about 90% of silent films because they were filmed on nitrate, which is super, super flammable.
0: Mm.
1: We've only lost
0: like half of American movies made before 1950.
1: Only half? Only half.
0: Did you know that we haven't, we've lost pretty much, we do know this because we talked about it a little bit, but... We've lost pretty much everything from the ancient world, mm-hmm. like the founding of Rome. We only have rumors to go on. Yeah. And scraps it's... of paper because of the
1: Gauls sacked. I hate it when our neighbors do car work right outside our fucking living room window.
0: Uh, excuse me, there's a podcast in here. Like, do you not know that we have ears, bitch? We it's should fine. get, like, one of those recording signs, like, please please be quiet recording Quite when this set. light bulb is yeah. and then just, like, turn that That'd on. That would be dope. Eng's... Sorry to interrupt you with my...
1: <laughs> Words. <laughs> I forgive you.
0: Thank you. Eng's last credited contribution to a movie was as the assistant director of Murder in New York Chinatown, which came out in 1960 when Esther was 46. You may realize that there are about a decade there unaccounted for. There sure is. Um, so, in 1950, Esther moved to New York City.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One day, she ran into an old acquaintance named Bobo. He was there with his acting troupe, which consisted solely of chinese actors who didn't speak english this was the year after the chinese communist revolution and they were reluctant to return to china because it was still unstable yeah that makes sense but they were having trouble finding jobs because they didn't speak english as mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. so our 36 year old friend esther decided to open a restaurant called bobo cafe to employ those actors and help them learn english it was a nice lady right It was an immediate smash hit, which is how Esther Ang accidentally sidestepped into her way as a career as a successful restaurateur. Wow. Hi,
1: I'm Esther Ang, and everything I touch turns to gold Mm -hmm. because I'm a badass lady. (laughs) (laughs) They talked
0: about it a little bit in her obituary. Legend has it, Craig Claiborne, who was the New York Times critic, food food critic critic at at the time, reported in his Guide to Dining Out in New York that Miss Eng and some of her associates in the Chinese Theater were once stranded in New York and opened one of the town's best Chinese restaurants, Bobo. The trouble with Bobo's, Mr. Claiborne wrote after giving it three stars, is its extreme popularity. It is a small (laughs) place, notably not elegant, and at times it is next to impossible to obtain a table. However, the fare is worth waiting for. Nice. Earlier today, you, Shan, heard me kind of like gasp or something. I don't remember exactly what I said um when i was doing some research i i, I remember this i said "Ah, oh, she got slammed in her obituary um <laughs> <laughs> so right after that it said miss ang sold bobo and opened esther Eng on pell street and Eng's corner on mott street mr claiborne gave esther Eng a single star saying it was good but not nearly up to the nearby bobo's <laughs> which i thought was maybe unnecessary for her yeah, you know actual kinda. obituary <laughs> Kind of unnecessary to put it mm-hmm. on OBIT, but like kind of funny also. She opened four more restaurants in New York City over the next 17 years. Wow. They were all in Manhattan. And they were called Macau, Hing Hing, Eng's Corner, and Esther Eng. Her restaurants, perhaps unsurprisingly, served Chinese food. Um, that they were tracks, yeah. They were some of the first restaurants to not serve any American food on the menu whatsoever. Oh, snap. So if you didn't like it, you could just go to another restaurant. It was plenty popular. They were extremely well received. Many of her uptown restaurants were reportedly managed by her ex-girlfriends, of which there were several. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, that's so funny. And that's pretty much all I have about Esther Ang. actually. She died of cancer on January 25th, 1970. She was 55 years old. Oh, too young. She was very young, um, but she was a badass lady. She made a lot of movies. She was a talented restaurateur. She wore men's suits and had mannish haircuts and left a string of broken hearts all along Hong Kong, San Francisco, and Manhattan. And then
1: also gave them jobs. And gave them jobs. Which is nice
0: of her. Because queer women are great at staying friends after they break up. I mean, you gotta if you mm-hmm. want to be friends with other queer women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. And for a long time, we all forgot about her. A article came out. About her in the '90s, and that's yeah. how people were like, "Oh yeah, she did that." But she was one of the first the very and first best female directors. Directors, yeah. yeah.
1: Dang, mm-hmm. what a very cool lady! Thank you so much for teaching me about yes, her. Yes,
0: of course. Thank you for letting me speak at you. Did Oops. we
1: did we vamp enough?
0: It's a short episode. That's I thought it okay. was going to be a lot longer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, um. Well, I think after this, we're going to try to record two more episodes today bonus content coming your way um so look for look for an episode of the bonus podcast brand new gay we're gonna try to start releasing one bonus content episode of brand new gay a
0: month i was so worried you were about to say a week i I don't know know if you saw my face like we did not talk about this what are you gonna say
1: (laughs) so we have two plans that we're gonna try to get at least recorded today, and hopefully we will get in that swing of things. We're going to work really hard to try to be in your ears once a week and back to a consistent schedule. Thank you all for being so patient and sticking with us and continuing to listen and support us. It means honestly the world to me. I don't know about you, Allison. I could take or leave it. Just oh, come kidding.
0: on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does. I am you honestly You should have floored. seen Allison's
1: face when I told her that, like, some people in the in the past week have complimented this podcast ri- without me saying that I was on it. Or, like, I got a message like, oh, hey, I've listened to your podcast. I recommended it to all my friends. Like, that's the best shit in the world to hear. You Are know, you kidding it's me? It's wild. I love it. Uh, it feels uh. weird. Speaking of support, yes. if you want to make us, like, cry with joy you can rate and review us on itunes i would suggest five stars mm-hmm. because i think we're a five-star podcast yes uh and honestly if you don't that's pretty homophobic uh-huh
0: that's a hate crime. <laughs> i'm sorry
1: <laughs> oh man for slight a slightly higher level of support you can support us uh for seven dollars a month on patreon.com slash vintage les pod and that's where you could get that
0: sweet, sweet boko that we were just talking about. Yeah,
1: that good, uh, uh, I don't, like, the thing I don't like about a podcast is I don't get the immediate reaction to the very funny name of the bonus episodes, which is Brand New Gay, because it's the opposite of vintage lesbians.
0: Vintage, brand new, lesbian, gay. Get it? Not opposite so, so much as their partners in this life. I'm pretty happy about it. It's very good. We laughed for, like, a very long time when we thought of it there's a killer theme song that's a little bit too long we might trim it down no no it's shorter than our regular theme song so even with the second verse
1: it's the same number of verses
0: because like we do the vintage yeah but but
1: but, um vintage the vintage lesbians theme song has a a, instrumental lead up ah they're both around like 30 seconds i see